It's Improbable Research Podcast number 203. Today, we'll talk about research involving who can touch whom, head on brain in brain, Gwegwen and the goad of small things, some more clever contraptions to capture crooks, some 2013 Ig Nobel Prize winners, fire eaters and punk rockers, and the names of bad guys. Yes, all of that. This, this is Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh and think. Real research about anything and everything from everywhere. Research that's maybe good or bad, important or trivial, valuable or worthless, compiled for you by the producers of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. I'm Mark Abrams, editor of the magazine Annals of Improbable Research and founder of the Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony. In this episode, we're resurrecting things that many of you never got the chance to hear. And we intend to make lots of new stuff. We can really use your help on that. We've started a Patreon to fund it. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. If you, that's Y-O-U, become an improbable donor on our Patreon, you will get special access to improbable things. Uh, Early access to episodes, audio from the cutting room floor, maybe some copies of the magazine, the Annals of Improbable Research. Details are at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com, that's C-O-M, slash improbable research, that's improbable research. For details about everything we talk about today, visit our website, improbable.com. A map of who can socially touch whom, where, in what countries, with improbable dramatic readings by Jean Burko Gleason. There's a touching tale to be told, and a team of researchers from Finland and the United Kingdom tell it. They tell it tautly, if turgidly, in a treatise called Topography of Social Touching Depends on Emotional Bonds Between Humans. Those researchers, Julia T. Suvaleto, Enrico Glerian, Robin Dunbar, Rita Hari, and Laurie Numenma, published this in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2015. Here's how they tell, yes, tautly and turgidly, what they did. Here we reveal quantified, relationship-specific maps of bodily regions where social touch is allowed in a large cross-cultural data set, 1,368 people from Finland, France, Italy, Russia, and the United Kingdom. Gene, is that phrase commonly used by academics, social touch? No, well, it probably is, but you have to be in the social touch field. I mean, I don't know it. Is there a social touch field? Um, Undoubtedly, there's a subfield of everything these days. How many people do you think are in this? I would imagine there's probably a handful. And once a paper like this gets published in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, there'd be a lot of young people figuring that they should do it too. You expect that there's a handful of people who have spent much of their academic career being groomed to be experts in social touch? Yes. I, I imagine there are, I imagine all of these people, it's a large number of people that I imagine they all have graduate students who are working with them doing just this kind of work. Do you imagine they are all adept at socially touching each other? I think that they have spent a lot of time thinking about it. The researchers did not have anybody touch anybody in their research. No, they avoided having anybody touch anybody. 
Participants were shown front and back silhouettes of human bodies with a word denoting one member of their social network. They were asked to color on separate trials the bodily regions where each individual in their social network would be allowed to touch them. The researchers tell what happened, though they tell it in words that may strike you as a little distant. Across all tested cultures, the total bodily area where touching was allowed was linearly Excuse detent- me, Jean, your cat, Foster, My Hello cat Foster, has to- just jumped onto the table and, he as he has done him. once or twice in the past, he is... He's Touching a, oh, with his head, the equipment and he's a good kid. the microphone. Let's try to thank kid. you, Foster. Let's right. let's press on. All right, where were we? Uh, Across I'd... all tested cultures, the total bodily area where touching was allowed was linearly dependent on the emotional bond with the toucher, but independent of when that person was last encountered. The researchers also make this curious statement. Close acquaintances and family members were touched for more reasons than less familiar individuals. This business of looking at silhouettes on a computer screen was technically a little complicated. The researchers came up with some little tricks to help themselves make sense of what was happening. One of those tricks got the name the Touchability Index, and the Touchability Index got its own acronym, T-I. We define the touchability index, TI, as the total number of pixels in the body that each candidate individual was allowed to touch the participants. The United Kingdom reached a TI of zero, no touch allowed, already at emotional bond level two, whereas... Foster, get away from the, that microphone. The cat is in my face here. <laughs> Come here. Okay. Where were we? The United Kingdom reaching a TI of zero, no touch allowed, already at emotional bond level of two, whereas the corresponding value for Finland, France, Italy, and Russia was zero to 0.5. Somewhat surprisingly to the Finnish and Italian authors of the present study, Finland had larger TIs than Italy. In Finland, there's more touching than Italy, okay. Is that true in your experience? I have not been to Finland, so I cannot answer. When you were in Italy, did a lot of people touch you? Oh, people, it's a very touchy country. Did you touch them back? No, I don't touch. And you did not initiate? I'm not a toucher. You have a TI of zero. I have very low TI. Zero? Not zero, because I touch cats, but, you know, in general, people. Here's the kitty again. He's going to help us. Okay. All right, foster people. Foster, behave yourself. Now he just Good boy. Okay. whacked a microphone with his tail. Okay. That way, Foster. Of course, sex and touching were related. The sex of the participant and the toucher significantly influenced the TIs. And sex was just part of the complexity. When considering social network memberships having the same type of social relationship with the participant, e.g. sister versus brother, females were allowed to touch wider body areas than males. And there were taboos, apparently. As expected, emotionally closer individuals in inner layers of the social network were allowed to touch wider bodily areas and for more reasons, whereas touching by strangers was primarily limited to the hands and upper torso. Genitals and buttocks formed clear taboo zones that only the emotionally closest individuals were allowed to touch. The researchers say that things were pretty different in some countries than in other countries. 
The data suggests that Russians use touch in slightly more conservative patterns than the other cultures, even though their TIs were in the average range. And the subjects from the United Kingdom had the lowest TIs, even though the touch patterns were similar as in other cultures. Other countries fell between these two extremes. Foster, stay away from that microphone. And finally, a word about availability. In all tested cultures, the higher the emotional bond, the larger the bodily area available for touching. That was a touching story. You didn't have to touch on that. Let's stay in touch. Head on Brain in Brain, with dramatic readings by Richard Baguley. Nowadays, not many people read Brain on Head in Brain. It was published in 1961. By it, I mean Dr. Russell Brain's mostly admiring six-page essay called Henry Head, A Man and His Ideas, which celebrates the 100th anniversary of Dr. Head's birth. Dr. Brain, who was also Lord Brain, Baron Brain of Einsham, was editor of the medical journal called Brain. It would have been surprising had Dr. Brain not written that essay about Dr. Head. That's because Head preceded Brain, the man, as head, which is to say editor, of the journal, the name of which I repeat for clarity, is Brain. Head headed Brain from 1905 to 1923. Brain became head in 1954, dying in office in 1967. No other editors in the journal's long history, it was founded in 1879, could or did boast surnames that so stunningly announced their obsession, profession, and place of employ. One of Dr. Brain's final articles in 1963 is called Some Reflections on Brain and Mind. Dr. Head wrote many monographs, some quite lengthy, for brain. The first, a 135-page behemoth, appeared in 1893, long before he became editor. In it, Dr. Head gives special thanks to a Dr. Buzzard, citing Dr. Buzzard's generosity, the nature of which is not specified. Reading Dr. Brain's Brain Tribute and other material about Dr. Head, one gets the strong impression that Head had a big head and that it was stuffed full of knowledge, which Dr. Head was not shy about sharing. Brain writes, Some men feel impelled to impart information to others. Head was one of those. Brain then quotes Professor H. M. Turnbull. I had the good fortune when first going to the hospital to meet daily in the mornings on the steam engine underground railway, Dr. Henry Head. He kindly taught me throughout our journeys about physical signs, much to the annoyance of our fellow travellers. Indeed, in his characteristic keenness, he spoke so loudly that as we walked to the hospital from St. Mary's Station, people on the other side of the wide Whitechapel Road would turn to look at us. Brain says that Head would illustrate his lectures by himself reproducing the involuntary movements or postures produced by nervous disease. And Henry Head doing gait was a perennial attraction. In 1904, at the age of 42, Head married a head mistress, Ruth Mayhew of Brighton High School for Girls. Brain assures us that she was... A fit companion for him in intelligence. Brain, though respectful of Head, suggests that his predecessor may have been over-brainy. He had many ideas. He bubbled over with them, and perhaps he was sometimes too ready to convince himself of their truth. 
Head's most nervy experiment involved, although not exclusively, his penis, about which he presented a surprising amount of detail in a lengthy monograph in Brain, helping to enliven a new century. The account, called A Human Experiment in Nerve Division, is too lengthy to recite here, except for the following snippets. We then discovered that the gland's penis responded to cutaneous stimuli in that peculiar manner with which we are already familiar from our study of the first stage of recovery after nerve division. On turning to Von Frey's account of the gland's penis, we found a brilliant description of a part endowed with protopathic and deep sensibility only. We can add nothing material to this remarkable description, but shall attempt to show how exactly in the case of H... The response of this organ to cutaneous stimuli corresponded to that of the highly protopathic area, which remains on the back of his hand. Protopathic, it says. Protopathic. Let's leave it at protopathic and move on. Right. Head, writing about Head's own penis in brain, continues. An interrupted current, almost painless on the normal skin, causes an aching, tingling sensation over the glands, which is extremely unpleasant. A characteristic whirring sensation is absent and is replaced by a slowly increasing diffused pain. It says whirring in quotation marks in the original. Is that correct? It does, yes. Continue, please, with the recitation. The most remarkable peculiarities are shown in the behavior of the glands to heat and cold. In the case of H, there appears to be no hot spots except in the neighborhood of the corona. This is Henry Head writing about his own penis, and he refers to himself as the letter H onward. In the case of H, there appear to be no heat spots except in the neighborhood of the corona. The body and tip of the glands are entirely insensitive to heat, but cold spots abound and paradox cold can be as easily evoked. Head then continues, rising to a crescendo of what you might think of as scientific excitement. We therefore made a number of observations in the following manner. The foreskin was drawn back and the penis allowed to hang downwards. A number of drinking glasses were prepared containing water at different temperatures. H stood with his eyes closed and R gradually approached one of the glasses until the surface of the water covered the glands but did not touch the foreskin. In that passage, H was referring to himself as H and he referred to a colleague who was assisting him as R. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. And now on to the conclusion of this passage. Contact with the fluid was not appreciated. If, therefore, the temperature of the water was such that it did not produce sensation of heat or cold, H was unaware that anything had been done. The year 1923 was a historic year for head and for brain, and one could argue especially for brain, the publication. First, brain's first article in brain appeared in that year, Though brief, it was and remains one of the few well-regarded medical studies that includes the phrase cracked pot in its title. The title of that study is... Clinical meeting held May 10th, 1923. Case of right frontal tumor, cracked pot percussion note over right frontal bone, left palomar reflex. Then, just months later, came Head's final article in Brain. Thus, there was a brief but documented period in which both head as head and brain headed to eventually become head were officially part of the journal Brain. Guiguen and the Goad of Small Things, with improbable dramatic readings by Robin Abrams. 
This week's under-publicized scientist is Nicholas Gwegwen, who finds significance or at least fascination in the goad of small things. He does what might be called voyeuristic microscopy, watching how people react to mundanely noticeable sights and sounds and touching. Many of the experiments involve young female confederates who are shaped or perfumed or who lay a hand upon strangers in particular ways. Generally, the test subjects who respond most vigorously are men. Based at the University of Breton Sud in France, Professor Guéguen has been pumping out publications since the year 2000. He honors the academic custom of referring to himself in print with the royal we. His experiments probe a range of human behavior. A study called Women's Bust Size and Men's Courtship Solicitation describes how Guéguen tested the effect of a woman's breast size on approaches made by males. We hypothesized that an increase in breast size would be associated with an increase in approaches by men. The study ends with an 827-word assertion that our hypothesis was confirmed. A related experiment produced a study called Women's Bust Size and Men's Courtship Solicitation. There, Professor Guéguen reports that 1,200 male and female French motorists were tested in a hitchhiking situation. A 20-year-old female confederate wore a bra which permitted variation in the size of cup to vary her breast size. She stood by the side of the road frequented by hitchhikers and held out her thumb to catch a ride. Increasing the bra size of the female hitchhiker was significantly associated with an increase in the number of male drivers, but not female drivers, who stopped to offer a ride. An earlier study called The Effect of Touch on Tipping, an evaluation in a French bar, aimed to fill a very specific gap in psychologists' knowledge of human behavior. The study explains, Although positive effect of touch on restaurant tipping has been widely found in the literature, no evaluation was made outside of the United States of America and in a bar. An experiment was carried out in a French bar. A waitress briefly touched, or not, the forearm of a patron when asking him or her what he or she wanted to drink. Results show the touch increases tipping behavior, although giving a tip to a waitress in a bar is unusual in France. Professor Guéguen has pursued related questions, some involving smiles, upon which he reports in additional studies. A study called The Effect of Perfume on Pro-Social Behavior of Pedestrians is representative of several Guéguen investigations of how people respond to the presence and actions of a heavily perfumed woman. In this one, the fragranced woman walks in front of strangers and drops a packet of paper handkerchiefs or a glove, apparently without noticing. In these and other, many other, forays, Professor Guéguen provocatively ponders the human condition, a carefully selected slice of it, anyway. Clever contraptions to capture crooks with improbable dramatic readings by Andrew Berry in the lusty tussle between good and evil. Technology has come to play a prominent role on each side. The side of good more consistently documents its innovations. Here's a very partial selection of inventions invented on the side of good to try to trap persons engaged in evil. First, I'll mention three inventions that won Ig Nobel Prizes. We might take a closer look at them some other time, but for right now, we'll just take a quick look. Gastano Pizzo of New York City was posthumously awarded the 2013 Ig Nobel Prize in Safety Engineering 
for inventing an electromechanical system to trap airplane hijackers. Mr. Pizzo's system drops a hijacker through trap doors, seals the hijacker into a package, then drops that encapsulated hijacker through the airplane's specially installed bomb bay doors, whence he parachutes to Earth, where police, having been alerted by radio, await his arrival. Mr. Pizzo's patent, U.S. patent number 3811643, is called Anti-Hijacking System for Aircraft. That was granted in 1972. Kuo Chung Xie of Taiwan was awarded the 2007 Ig Nobel Prize in Economics for patenting a device in the year 2001 that catches bank robbers by dropping a net over them. Mr. Xie's patent, U.S. patent number 6219959, is called Net Trapping System for Capturing a Robber Immediately. Charles Fourry and Michelle Wong were awarded the 1999 Ig Nobel Peace Prize for inventing an automobile burglar alarm consisting of a detection circuit and a flamethrower. Fourry and Wong's international patent, patent number WO 1999-032231, is called a security system for a vehicle. The stray numbers and letters you're going to hear in the dramatic readings now refer to specific pieces of the inventions, as shown in the technical drawings which you, who are just listening to this, will have to imagine, unless you look at a copy of the patent, which you can do pretty easily by going to our website, improbable.com. We'll begin with a look at three innovations from the Victorian age. 1892, Herd's Pickpocket and Coat Thief Hand Grabber. J.F. Hurd's invention called Pickpocket and Coat Thief Detector, that's U.S. Patent 477940, was granted in the year 1892. It took aim at thieves who would brazenly insert one of their hands into someone else's coat pocket. Hurd wrote, The purpose of this invention is to provide a device adapted to be connected to, or located at, or within the pocket of a garment by which an alarm may be sounded in case of any unauthorized intrusion into the pocket while the garment is suspended on a hook or peg, or in case of the removal of the garment. There is present a circuit-making and breaking device attached to the garment and a flexible connection from the same which extends across the pocket space in position to be encountered by an intruding hand and caused to operate the circuit, making and breaking device to close the circuit. 1895, Walsh's Miscreant Trapping Fire Alarm Box. Thomas Walsh's invention, which he called a fire alarm box, that's U.S. patent 545141, was granted in 1895. It captures setters of false alarms. Walsh wrote... This invention shall have a deterrent effect upon mischievous persons sending false alarms, and to such end the invention consists of an attachment in the form of an automatically operated grip or handcuff acting to detain the person operating the alarm until the arrival of the fireman. If a hand is passed through the handcuff to reach the operating handle D, the moment it is rotated and the bolt freed so as to drop the rods, F will be drawn together and so detain the person until such bolt is lifted. 1910. Pleasak's Burglar's Fatal Step Mechanism. Martin Pleasak's invention, which he called a burglar apparatus, that seems uh, ambiguous wording, but that's what he called it, a burglar apparatus, U.S. patent 978396, 
was granted in 1910. It apprehends a wrongdoer in the moment he or she takes the final step. This is an apparatus for thwarting the efforts of burglars to surreptitiously enter dwellings, stores, or other buildings. And it has for one of its objects to provide a simple, reliable, and efficient apparatus calculated to trap and securely hold a burglar when the miscreant steps and imposes his weight on the platform comprised in the apparatus. A is a wall of a building, B is a window therein, and C is the main frame of my novel apparatus, which is suitably fixed in horizontal position to the inner side of the wall and is disposed slightly below the window, as shown. In the opening D of mainframe C is arranged a vertically movable platform F, slightly smaller in area than the opening, which platform F is yieldingly supported so that its upper side is normally flush with that of the main frame. The platform F is supported by horizontal bars G fixed to its underside and upright coiled springs H interposed between said bars G and the horizontal portions of the hangers E and suitably retained in position. It will be readily understood from this that when the jaw closes T are moved upward through the openings I and the openings J, the said jaw closes will open and move past the doors L and by cooperating with the arms of the bell-shaped jaws will raise said jaws and carry the outer portions thereof toward each other. The 2013 Ig Nobel Prize winners, with improbable dramatic readings by Jean Burko Gleason. Let's look back at the winners of the 2013 Ig Nobel Prizes. The prizes, as you know, honor achievements that make people laugh, then think. The 2013 Ig Nobel Prizes were awarded at the 23rd First Annual Ig Nobel Prize Ceremony at Harvard's Sanders Theater. Nearly all the winners came at their own expense. Several Nobel laureates were on stage physically presenting the Ig Nobel Prizes to the Ig Nobel Prize winners. The 2013 Ig Nobel Prize for Medicine was awarded to a team from Japan, the UK, and China to Masateru Uchiyama, Xiang Yuan Jin, Chi Zhang, Toshihito Hire, Atsushi Amano, Hisashi Bashuda, and Masanori Niimi for assessing the effect of listening to opera on heart transplant patients who are mice. They described it in a study. Auditory stimulation of opera music induced prolongation of murine cardiograph allograph survival and maintained generation of regulatory CD4+, CD25+, cells, published in the Journal of Cardiothoracic Surgery in 2012. The study says, This study investigated the effects of sounds on alloimmune responses in a murine, that is mouse, model of cardiac allograft, that is a heart transplanted from another person's, or in this case, another mouse's body transplantation. Methods. Naive mice underwent transplantation of a heart and were exposed to one with three types of music, opera, la traviata, classical, Mozart, and new age, Enya or one of six different single sound frequencies for seven days. 
Additionally, we prepared two groups of recipients with tympanic membrane perforation exposed to opera for seven days and recipients exposed to opera for seven days before transplantation. The study gives a little bit of background about why this was done. Since World War II, the use of music therapy, which is defined as prescribed exposure to music to aid in preventing or ameliorating physical and psychological problems, has become established internationally in a variety of healthcare fields. And after explaining why they did it and what they did, then they tell you what they found. Results. CBA recipients of cardiac allografts who were given either no treatment, pretreatment, or were exposed to one of six single sound frequencies rejected their grafts acutely, as did mice with tympanic membrane perforation exposed to opera. In contrast, allograft recipients exposed to opera or classical music from the day of transplantation until six days afterward had significantly prolonged survival of their grafts. In other words? One week of exposure to opera and Mozart music apparently induced much more significantly prolonged survival of cardiac allografts in a murine, that is mouse, model, compared with New Age music, Enya. The 2013 Ig Nobel Prize for Psychology was awarded to a large international team from France, the USA, the UK, Netherlands, Poland, to Laurent Begu, Brad Bushman, Ulman Zarhouni, Baptiste Subra, and Mehdi Uraba for confirming by experiment that people who think they are drunk also think they are attractive. The team described it in a study. Beauty is in the eye of the beer holder. People who think they are drunk also think they are attractive. Published in the British Journal of Psychology in 2012. That study says... This research examines the role of alcohol consumption on self-perceived attractiveness. Study 1, carried out at a bar room, showed that the more alcoholic drinks consumers consumed, the more attractive they thought they were. In study two, participants in a bogus taste test study were given either an alcoholic beverage or a non-alcoholic beverage, with half of each group believing that they had consumed alcohol and half believing they had not. After consuming beverages, they delivered a speech and rated how attractive, bright, original, and funny they thought they were. The speeches were videotaped and rated by independent judges. And what officially were the results of this experiment? Results showed that participants who thought they had consumed alcohol gave themselves more positive self-evaluations. However, ratings from independent judges showed that this boost in self-evaluation was unrelated to actual performance. Who were the people who volunteered to be test subjects in this experiment? In the first study, where everyone who thought they were drinking alcohol really was drinking alcohol, participants were 19 customers. Their ages ranged from 19 to 40, 63% of whom were males, in a barroom in Grenoble, France. They received a lottery ticket in exchange for their voluntary participation. In the second study, where some of the people who thought they were drinking alcohol really weren't, Participants were 94 French men. Three did not follow instructions, 
and five others suspected a discrepancy between what they were told concerning their beverage and what they were actually given. We therefore excluded them from the sample. Thus, the final sample included 86 men. How were these 94 French men, including the three who it turned out would not follow instructions and the five who it turned out became suspicious, how were these 94 French men recruited into the experiment in the first place? Participants were recruited via newspaper advertisements for a taste test study and were paid 14 euro, that's about $21 per hour. Men who responded to the ads were interviewed over the phone, ostensibly to determine if they were allergic to any foods, including alcohol. Potential at-risk drinkers were identified by a screening test for alcohol dependence and were excluded from the study. And what do the researchers think we should think about this? Previous studies have shown that alcohol consumption increases the attractiveness of members of the opposite sex. Our studies provide complementary results showing that the mere belief that one has consumed alcohol increases self-perceived attractiveness. This is an important topic to deal with because self-perceived attractiveness has been shown to significantly influence intimate interactions. For example, in one diary study, it was observed that people who thought they were attractive had more intimate interactions of all types than did those who thought they were less attractive. However, the perceived attractiveness lies in the eyes of the beer holder and is not shared by anyone else. Jean, is that report in accord with your own experience drinking in bars in France? I've always felt that I was very attractive, whether I drank or not. And I'm sure you were always correct. I, I've always been very attractive. Yes. As you can tell. Yes. Let's move on in this. The 2013 Ig Nobel Prize, awarded jointly in the fields of biology and astronomy, was awarded to a team from Sweden, Australia, Germany, South Africa, and the UK specifically to Marie Daca, Emily Baird, Marcus Byrne, Clark Schultz, and Eric Warrant. They were honored for discovering that when dung beetles get lost, the dung beetles can navigate their way home by looking at the Milky Way. The scientists describe it in a study. Dung beetles use the Milky Way for orientation, published in the journal Current Biology in 2013. That study says... When the moon is absent from the night sky, stars remain as celestial visual clues. Nonetheless, only birds, seals, and humans are known to use stars for orientation. African ball-rolling dung beetles exploit the sun, the moon, and the celestial polarization pattern to move along straight paths away from the intense competition at the dung pile. Even on clear, moonless nights, many beetles still manage to orientate along straight paths. That phrase, African ball-rolling dung beetles, that may be one of the most beautiful phrases in all of biology. Could I get you to repeat that phrase again? African ball-rolling dung beetles. Do you like that? Who doesn't like that? It's very, it's very attractive. These moonlighting straight arrow dung beetles fired the imagination of the scientists. In the study, the scientists wrote, 
This led us to hypothesize that dung beetles exploit the starry sky for orientation, a feat that has, to our knowledge, never been demonstrated in an insect. The scientists got to work, and they got results. Here we show that dung beetles transport their dung balls along straight paths under a starlit sky, but lose this ability under overcast conditions. In a planetarium, the beetles orientate equally well when rolling under a full starlit sky as when only the Milky Way is present. This, the scientists say convincingly, was a first. This finding represents the first convincing demonstration for the use of the starry sky for orientation in insects and provides the first documented use of the Milky Way for orientation in the animal kingdom. And this adds to humankind's knowledge of African ball-rolling dung beetles. The 2013 Ig Nobel Prize for Safety Engineering was awarded to the late Gastano Pizzo from America for inventing an electromechanical system to trap airplane hijackers. The system drops a hijacker through trap doors, seals the hijacker into a package, then drops the encapsulated hijacker through the airplane's specially installed bomb bay doors, whence the hijacker parachutes to Earth where police having been alerted by radio, await his arrival. Mr. Pizzo received a patent for his invention. Anti-hijacking system for aircraft. U.S. patent number 3811643, granted on May 21, 1972. The patent first gives a little capsule description. This is an anti-hijacking system for an airplane to be operated during flight. A partition or barrier located immediately aft of the pilot's cabin is adapted to be raised, dividing the aft section longitudinally into port and starboard areas, the floors of which are dropped on command to lower the hijacker into a capsule in the belly of the airplane. The capsule is releasable through opened Bombay doors, having attached there to a parachute for safely returning the hijacker within the capsule to Earth. Then comes a more detailed look at exactly how this works. The numbers here refer to specific parts of the patent's technical drawings. Underneath each zone of the service area is a releasable capsule, 34, in the form of a net and having a draw cord, 36, each being supported in the belly area, 12, of the aircraft by releasable hooks, 38, projecting below deck, 14. The draw cord, 36, of each capsule is attached to a parachute, 40, which is opened automatically by the weight of the hijacker as he falls into one of the capsules, 34, releasing the draw cord, 36, free of the hooks, 38, and closing the capsule over him by conventional and well-known ripcord attachment devices. Simultaneously, the Bombay doors, 42, are opened by air cylinders, 44, permitting the capsule, 34, and his parachute, 40, to drop there through. When you know what the pieces are and how those pieces work together, you can perhaps better appreciate what will happen when some unsuspecting hijacker tries to carry out his evil plan. 
The pilot, on being notified of an attempted hijacking, raises the partition, 16, to isolate the perpetrator in one of the port or starboard zones of the service area. Thus, separated from others in the airplane, including the stewardess, he is dropped into one of the top openings of one of the capsules, 34, at which point the Bombay doors, 42, are opened, and the capsule, 34, with its human cargo, is parachuted safely to Earth. The 2013 Ig Nobel Prize for Physics was awarded to a large international team from Italy, the UK, Denmark, Switzerland, Russia, France. The team members were Alberto Minetti, Yuri Ivanenko, Germana Capellini, Nadia Domenici, and Francesco Lacquaniti. They were honored for discovering that some people would be physically capable of running across the surface of a pond if those people and that pond were on the moon. The scientists described it in a study. Humans running in place on water at simulated reduced gravity, published in the journal PLOS One in 2012. The study says, Running on top of a water surface is a task that only few animals can accomplish. In fact, the organisms most successful in this task are water strider insects, which stay afloat by using surface tension to sustain their small body weight. Bigger animals, such as the basilisk lizard, use a different strategy to avoid sinking while running. They strike the surface with sufficient vigor to generate hydrodynamic forces on their driving legs to support their weight. But the scientists, of course, were most interested in humans. Humans are apparently incapable of walking or running on water. In their classic study of the basilisk lizard, Glasheen and McMahon calculate the unsurprising result that humans are far too big and weak to splash their feet hard enough to hold their weight. However, there are two ways of circumventing these limitations. One way is by reducing gravity, and the other one is by running with flotation devices, giant shoes or fins, as envisaged by Leonardo da Vinci. So the scientists decided to give it a try. Here we consider a combination of these two mechanisms. Relatively small fins to increase the water reaction force for a given foot motion, and reducing the gravity to about 20% of Earth gravity to reduce body weight. To our knowledge, nobody has previously tested the level of gravity at which humans could run on water. They reduced the gravity by attaching essentially bungee cords to these people who were then dangled from a ceiling over a little pool of water. Now, here's a little bit more detail about how they did this. Okay, we experimentally tested whether humans could generate enough muscle power to run in place over a wading pool under simulated reduced gravity. Participants wearing relatively small fins and a harness attached to a constant force unloading system experienced different levels of simulated gravity. How did things turn out? We discovered that the maximum body mass compatible with running on water at the gravity of the moon, which is about 16% as strong as the gravity of the Earth, and at a stride frequency of 1.7 hertz, is 73 kilograms, which is about 160 pounds. Fire eaters and punk rockers. We're going to look at four medical papers that one way or another are about people breathing things into their lungs. We have improbable dramatic readings by Chris Katsapas. 
The first study here is really more about the nose or the ear, more than about the lungs. It does involve all three body regions. Here we go. Pauken Beluftung durch Aufblasen eines Luftballons mit der Nase, which translates as Middle Ear Ventilation by Blowing Up a Balloon with the Nose by S. Kaus, published in the journal Laryngorinotology in 1992. The other medical studies don't talk so much about the nose or the ears. Now, on to Fire Eater's Lung by P.E. Brander, E. Taskinen, and B. Stenius Arinala, published in the European Respiratory Journal in 1992. The authors at Helsinki University in Finland report, We describe here two cases of hydrocarbon pneumonitis in fire eaters, caused by accidental aspiration of petroleum during the performance of fire eating. Now, for something not completely different. Fire Eater's Lung, 17 Cases and a Review of the Literature. By Thibaut Gentina, Isabelle Tilly-Leblanc, Sophie Birolo, Saidi Faisal, Thierry Salens, Laurent Boudot, Daniel Vervolet, Philippe de Laval, and André Bernard Tonel, published in the journal Medicine in 2001. You read those names quite delightfully. Could you read them again in the opposite order? André Bernard Tonel, Philippe de Laval, Daniel Vervolet, Laurent Boudot, Thierry Salen, Saidi Faisal, Sophie Birolo, Isabelle Tilly Leblanc, and Thibault Gentina. Thanks for that. Right. Now, these authors, who are in Paris, in Armentieres, in Marseille, and Lille, all in France, report different substances called pyrofluids are used by fire eaters. But the most common is the petroleum derivative curdan, characterized by its reduced viscosity. How do you spell that? K-E-R-D-A-N. And you pronounce it? Cardan. Or Cardan. Onward. By its reduced viscosity and unfortunately its rapid diffusion throughout the bronchial And what do you tree. mean by viscosity? So viscosity is how thick a fluid is. Okay. So well, really we're talking about what they mean by viscosity. Yeah. I mean, that's that a viscous fluid is something that's really goopy and a thin fluid is something that's really thin. Onward. It's characterized by its reduced viscosity, and unfortunately, its rapid diffusion throughout the bronchial tree after sudden accidental aspiration. This type of accident occurs during the show as the fire eater blows out a mouthful of curdan against a burning stick. Flames seem to emanate directly from the mouth of the fire eater. Curdan is composed of petroleum distillated products like toluene, xylene, ethylbenzene, propylbenzene, and methylbenzene, which differ from kerosene composition. Do you mind reading those substance names in reverse order? Methylbenzene, propylbenzene, uh, methylbenzene, propylbenzene, ethylbenzene, xylene, and toluene. To date, only short series or isolated observations of fire eater's lung have been reported. In the present study, we report clinical, functional, and radiologic characteristics of 17 patients with fire eater's lung. Finally, a case of what really has to be described as really bad breath. Punk rocker's lung. Pulmonary Fibrosis in a Drug-Snorting Fire Eater by R.D. Buchanan, D. Lamb, and A. Seaton, published in the British Medical Journal, the Clinical Research Edition, in 1981. These authors at City Hospital in Edinburgh, Scotland, and at the University of Edinburgh, report... The patient. Until three months earlier, he had been a full-time drummer in a punk rock band and had led an irregular existence, which ended when he ignited his flat with a cigarette. Since then, he had been living with his parents. He smoked about 60 cigarettes daily and had regular morning cough and sputum. As part of his act, he used to fill his mouth with turpentine or paraffin, which he would blow out and ignite. He had taken drugs since he was 16 years old, often swallowing them with beer. He recalled taking, amongst others, 
Mandrax, Tuinal, Dexedrine, DF118, Diazepam, and Cannabis. He occasionally inhaled powdered drugs, particularly Tuinal, Nitrazepam, and Cocaine, through a rolled-up pound note. But that's not the end of the story. A drill biopsy of the lung was performed to make a diagnosis. The specimen showed foci of fibrosis containing clumps of macrophages and clefts lined by bronchiolar epithelium. The fibrosis was probably due to the combination of inhalation of paraffin or turpentine in fire-eating and of talc, a lubricant and filler in tablets. As the habit of snorting drugs appears to be prevalent in the lunatic fringe of our society, more cases of this syndrome would probably be recognized, and physicians should be aware of it as a radiological mimic of sarcoidosis in young people. Now, Chris, you're a physician. You read a lot of... No, I'm not. Now, Chris, you're not a physician, but you're a PhD. You read a lot of uh, medical studies, correct? I do. And sometimes I even understand them. Is it common for medical studies in medical journals to include the phrase prevalent in the lunatic fringe of our society? So, no, it's not. It's really unusual. And this is a serious journal. The British Medical Journal is actually a major medical journal. It's not like a small fringe publication. And so... Is it also read by the lunatic fringe in our society? Well, yes. Most doctors read it. Thank you, Chris. The Names of Bad Guys with Improbable Dramatic Readings by Jean Burko Gleason. Let's look at two studies that, in the pursuit of law and orderliness, look at people's first names. Some people's first names. One study says it's uncovered the first names of disruptive students, names so powerful that maybe those names all by themselves can cause those students to become disruptive. Boys named Sue, Disruptive Children and Their Peers, by David Filio, published in the journal Education, Finance, and Policy in 2007. Filio at the University of Florida explains, I propose an unusual identification strategy to estimate the effects of disruptive students on peer behavior and academic outcomes. I suggest that boys with names most commonly given to girls may be more prone to misbehavior as they get older. The data bear this out. In the large Florida school district that provided me with the data for this analysis, in elementary school, there is no relationship between names and boys' behavior. But in sixth grade, the first year of middle school, a large gap emerges in behavior between boys with names associated with girls and other boys. I utilize data on names, classroom assignment, behavior problems, and student test scores from a large Florida school district in the school years spanning 1996-97 through 1999-2000. I have access to discipline records. Filio gets specific about which names cause problems. Just under 2% of boys have names that are more frequently given to girls than to boys, suggesting that a child would share a class with a boy with a feminine name in about one of three classes. Among the boys' names given overwhelmingly to girls, the most commonly given name in the state of Florida between 1989 and 1994 are in order Alexis, given 90% of the time to girls, Courtney, 94%, Shannon, 92%, Kelly, 93%, Shelby, 95%, and Ashley, 99%. 
Filio gets specific also about what we can do about this. The results of my investigation suggest a potential role for early prevention of disruptive children. I have identified a boy's name as a possible early warning flag of disruptive behavior in middle school, and there are surely other pre-indicators of classroom disruption that I have not uncovered. A different study says it may have uncovered some first names that are often associated with people who turn to a life of crime. First names and crime. Does unpopularity spell trouble? By David E. Callist and Daniel Y. Lee, published in the journal Social Science Quarterly in 2009. Callist and Lee at Shippensburg University in Pennsylvania say... We investigate the relationship between first-name popularity and juvenile delinquency to test the hypothesis that unpopular names are positively correlated with crime. Callist and Lee name some names that they say they have calculated are simply popular. The following is a list of select names in their respective PNI. That stands for Popular Names Index. Matthew, 76. Christopher, 64. Ryan, 49, Brian, 30, Richard, 20, Charles, 16, Luke, 5, Walter, 2, and Garland, 0.06. Those are not election results, correct? Right. Callist and Lee say that kids with these popular names are, in general, in their view, not the problem. Our results show that unpopular names are positively correlated with juvenile delinquency for both blacks and whites. The study does not specifically mention any of the unpopular names it says are associated with criminals. Callist and Lee state, for the record, that a name might not of itself be the thing that turns a kid into a criminal. At the end, Callist and Lee write, Conclusions. Unpopular names are likely not the cause of crime, but correlated with factors that increase the tendency toward juvenile delinquency, such as a disadvantaged home environment and residence in a county with low socioeconomic status. Callist and Lee have a little bit more to say. The names may not be to blame, they explain, but those names just might be good ways to identify who's a criminal. First name characteristics may have implications for other types of crime and law research. Are first names useful in predicting criminal recidivism? Do jurors use information on the defendant's name to help decide guilt or punishment? Depending on the information available to researchers, first name characteristics may be an important factor to help identify individuals at high risk of committing or recommitting crime, leading to more effective and targeted intervention programs. You've been listening, if you've been listening, to Improbable Research, the podcast about research that makes people laugh, then think. For details about what we talked about, visit our website, improbable.com. We could very much use your help so that we can make new podcast episodes and other improbable and ignobel stuff. Details are at our website and at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, that's C-O-M, slash, that's slash, Improbable Research. If you become an improbable donor, you'll get special access to improbable things. I'm Mark Abrams. Today, Jean Burko Gleason, Foster the Cat, Melissa Franklin, 
Richard Baguley, Robin Abrams, Andrew Berry, and Chris Katsapas lent their voices, expertise, opinions, and personal quirks with dramatic readings from research studies you may have overlooked. It's possible that Seth Glicksman is the improbable production assistant. It's possible that the mysterious John Shedler, or maybe the subterranean Bruce Petchek, did the audio engineering of this episode. Next time on this podcast, we'll look at something or other. Until then... Goodbye. 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 <laughs>